wish you all a very good morning. A little bit uh, nervous this morning, and I don't really know why, but uh, hopefully I'll uh, settle down and we'll get going. Uh, On Thursday just gone, it was Ruth's mum's funeral, and I got up early to pray, and just really prayed that the Lord would be with Ruth and her family, and that God's peace would really just come to the family and friends that were going to come. And that happened, and it was really lovely hearing all the great tributes about Ruth's mum, who had had a relationship with the Lord for probably 70, 80 years of her life. But as it happens, I also uh, prayed that God would be merciful for me. And I'm not really sure why at that point. But as we was driving to Dorset, Ruth likes to throw me these little curveballs, which happened to just keep me on my toes. And she said to me, try and be nice to people and do your best and try and pretend that you're at least sociable. (laughs) And by the way, you've been elected to give the grace at the wake. And God was merciful to me because I found a nice little bar, I could have a pint and I could look out at the beautiful Dorset coastline. So I was set. But it leads on to today's beatitude, which is, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And often within the four Gospels, we see Jesus taking his disciples aside, either before or after his teachings, and explaining to them the meaning of his teachings. And as I sifted through my study Bible, It would appear that Jesus may have done this before addressing the crowds on the Beatitudes. Jesus, at this point in his ministry, was very, very popular with the crowds. And Jesus, knowing that his popularity would draw attention to his disciples, and Jesus, knowing his disciples so well, and understanding their various personalities and the flaws to their character, and knowing that they could be prone to being proud, maybe having a feeling of self-importance, and having even a certain amount, or then thinking that I had a certain amount of power and authority. In taking the disciples aside, he tells them quite plainly that each would face their own trials and temptations as his disciples, and that they should forget about their own ambitions, and forget the idea of fame and fortune. And if you were to, dis, uh, to study the disciples' lives after Jesus' death and resurrection, and the coming of Pentecost, and then the Holy Spirit, their lives are transformed to such a degree that the gospel message of love, mercy, and grace would lead 10 out of the 12 disciples to being martyred for their faith. The Beatitudes themselves are really a sacrificial way of service unto our Lord Jesus. And it may not lead to martyrdom, but if you apply the Beatitudes to your life, it will certainly make you a standout Christian. I believe the Beatitudes 
are the spinal cord or the backbone to the Christian faith. It is not a multi-choice selection of choose one and forget the rest. And as we look at blessed are the merciful, perhaps showing mercy to another is the most difficult of the Beatitudes. Difficult because mercy, true godly mercy, requires in its fullest measure love, great compassion, forgiveness and grace. And maybe especially to someone who may have caused an offence to you. The Beatitudes themselves, or for me at least, are quite difficult to understand fully. And as I set out to understand what real mercy, godly mercy is, I've attempted to show God's mercy from two perspectives. In this regards, I'm personally grateful for the great men and women of faith that are in the Bible and how God extended his mercy to his flawed servants. And two readily come to mind. And the first of that is Samson. Samson set apart from birth with strict instructions from God to his parents on how this wild child should be brought up as a Nazarene. Samson set apart to be Israel's judge for a 20-year period, blessed with supernatural strength to overcome Israel's oppressors, the Philistines. Yet Samson, his lust for life, his often total disregard for God's ways, would eventually lead him to a bad hairdresser and the loss of both eyes. However, in repentance, and though physically blind, Samson becomes spiritually sighted and cries out to the Lord for mercy. And in one of the most potent of prayers in Holy Scriptures, Samson bound in chains, tormented and ridiculed by the Philistines in the Temple of Dagon, Samson is placed between two pillars, two pillars in the temple to which the foundations of the temple are held. And Samson prays, O sovereign Lord, remember me. Please strengthen me just once more and let me with one blow get revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. And in mercy, God answers Samson's prayer. The temple of Dagon is destroyed with the Philistine rulers slayed by the power of God. Why did God show Samson such mercy? I believe it was simply because God's love, compassion for his flawed servant showed that God was with him all the days of his life. And it shows that God does not abandon us at our most critical times in our lives. Samson was a man for his time, reigning when nobody else wanted the job. And almost in spite of himself, he did what was ordained by God. It is said that sometimes courage and madness go hand in hand. And maybe that is why he is listed as a hero of the faith in Hebrews chapter 11. And despite our frailties, 
God remains merciful to us. We then can think of King David, the only man in the Bible who is known as being a man after God's own heart. Yet David was flawed with his own humanness. Adulterer, murderer, poor father, involved in a treason plot against Israel, to name a few of his character flaws. Yet God saw something in Samson and David that allowed him to be, or then to be used for God's glory. So we should be encouraged that as flawed as we are with our own human frailties, and no matter what our calling in life is, when we stray, get things wrong, God continuously extends his mercy to us and remains seeking our potential. God's mercy to us is to always lead us back to him and for us to be in continued service unto him. Philippians 1.6 says, Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So why is God so merciful to us? Firstly, because I believe that he is totally committed to each of us. Secondly, God's grace extends to us, knows no boundaries. We can mess up a thousand times, yet his love and compassion never wavers and continues to lead us forward. And thirdly, like Samson and David, our character flaws do not disqualify us for being in service to Jesus. God's plans and his purposes for our lives are sealed with his approval. So what does God require of us then? How does being merciful tie in with Jesus' teaching on blessed are the merciful? In Micah 6.8, it says this, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. In the Old Testament, under the law of hospitality, the Israelites in the wilderness were required that should an enemy approach your tent and then grasp hold of the tent cords and ask for help, you were then required under Levitical law to show mercy and to provide for your enemy in whichever way. I guess you could have called that law the law of obligation. But along comes the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, and he tells us we are no longer under the law. But a question remains. Was Jesus' teaching, blessed are the merciful, a command, or just, I'll be merciful if I have to? In other words, being merciful grudgingly. Hopefully I'll get to that point. Years ago, a close friend and then work colleague said to me, Watson, you don't seem to like people very much. I grinned slightly at him, but didn't answer immediately. He then said to me, well, I thought you Christians were called to like people. I finally responded by saying, well, as far as I know, I'm not called to like anybody. Frustrated by my answer, he said to me, explain that answer to me. 
At that time, I was involved in many, many union duties, and I held a very senior position within the union. But pass and parcel of being a union representative, you were always going to acquire a certain amount of enemies. I then said to this friend, you know, I'm called to love, not like. Frustrated and almost demanding a full response, I finally said, it's like this for me. I said, a manager comes to me one day. He doesn't like me, and in truth, I loathe everything he stands for. But the manager says to me, I am in deep, 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 serious trouble, and you are the only person who can help me. We don't like each other, but I'm begging you, please help me. So in compassion, with love for the Lord Jesus, and with integrity to the Christian faith, I set aside my differences with this manager and help him. My friend responded by saying, so you are telling me that in despite of your resentment and dislike to this person, you would help them? And I replied, I honestly believe I would. I'm not called to like him, but I'm called to love him and respond to his need. In truth, I can examine the life of having shown mercy. Yet again, in truth, at times, I've shown a bankruptcy of spirit in regards to showing mercy to someone. So where does true mercy come from? Firstly, as seen in the stories of Samson and King David, our mercy to each other comes from God's mercy to us. Secondly, as in the other Beatitudes, we see a spiritual emptiness in our souls, whereby we begin to seek a hunger and a thirst for Jesus' righteousness. And as our hearts and hunger thirst for God's righteousness, God begins to do his work in our hearts. To become a merciful person is to become a broken person. In other words, you get the power to show mercy to others by cultivating a view of God and ourselves as Christians. That in every joy that we experience, in every virtue that we might have, and the distress of our lives is owed simply to the free and undeserved mercy that God has shown us. I offer only as an opinion that sometimes really, really good people struggle with the aspects of how God mercifully deals with others. And the Pharisees in Jesus' day had the same problem. The Pharisees, tied into their own righteousness, failed to see the truth about Jesus. And that truth was that God was working in our Lord's heart as he reached and responded to others. Jesus loved fellowshipping with the down and outs of his day the loathed tax collectors, the prostitutes, the destitute, and the marginalised. And in Matthew 9, between the verses of 10 to 13, the Pharisees asked Jesus, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus, hearing this, replies, those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick Go away and learn what this means. 
I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And the phrase, I desire, desire mercy, not sacrifice, is a quote from Hosea 6.6, in which God accuses his people that their love for people is like the dew on the ground. In other words, it's there in the early morning for one hour, and then it's gone for the rest of the day. The point of the message is that God wants our hearts to be centred on him at all times and to have a continued passion for him so we can respond in love to others. And there are four dimensions to mercy. Firstly, it sees distress and then responds to distress. And we can think of the story, can't we, of the Good Samaritan. Secondly, it responds eternally with a heart of passion or shows pity to a person's distress. Thirdly, it responds externally. In other words, it responds with an offer of practical help. And fourthly, it acts even when that person in distress is an enemy. In putting these four points together, it simply means that true mercy is meeting people's needs. It's not as simple as feeling compassion, but showing compassion. It's not only sympathizing, but giving a helping hand. Mercy is giving comfort to the bereaved, love to the rejected, companionship to the lonely, and forgiveness to the offender. Showing mercy should be one of the loveliest and noblest of virtues of the Christian life. Yet I have to say we live in a world where justice and God's mercy to others is often in short supply. The Roman Empire, conquerors of the new world, sophisticated culturally, the most powerful army of its time and full of earthly wisdom, despised the whole idea of mercy. Israel, in Jesus' time, was occupied by the Romans and mercy was seen as a sign of supreme weakness. Their regime was brutal and justice was handed out swiftly. The Romans glorified in manly courage and to show mercy simply reflected that you had great limitations to your human makeup. But Jesus did not have any human limitations. As God's only son, he declared this about himself in Luke chapter 4. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and the regaining of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. You see, Jesus' short ministry on earth was able to turn the tables on the world's warped values. When he encountered hate, he turned the encounter to love. When he encountered sin, he turned a person's sin into forgiveness and restoration back to God. When he encountered those captive through illnesses, disease, demonic oppression, the loss of sight and the lame, Jesus restored the physical 
and spiritual order. And whilst in our own humanness and often sinful state, we'll never come close to being like Jesus. Here is something to contemplate. Jesus expects us to go out into the world and into our communities and set the captive free. In Matthew 25, often referred to as the great compassion, gives us the blueprint of how Jesus wants us to be merciful. And between the verses of 34 to 37, it says this, And the king will say to those on the right, You who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of time. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you visited me. And then if you flick to verse 40, it says, The king will reply, Truly, I tell you, whatever you did for the least of my brothers and sisters, you did for me. In this parable of Jesus, he describes acts of mercy that we can do every day. And these acts do not depend on wealth, ability, or even intelligence. We have no excuses to connect, uh, sorry, to neglect those who have needs. We all have a role to play. So is blessed are the merciful a command from our Lord? And the answer is simply yes. Jesus demands our personal involvement in the caring for others. When the King James Bible was being translated, theologians and biblical scholars sifting through painstaking New Testament Greek parchments, they came across the word agape, simply translated as God's love. However, they also translated and linked the word agape to the word charity or being charitable. C.S. Lewis believed that the highest variety of love known to humanity is a selfless charitable love that is passionately committed to the well-being of others. Jesus' agape love is an unconditional love that is rooted in an unchanging decision. It always gives and doesn't change whether it is returned or not. It is a decision of the heart to seek the other person's highest good and welfare, no matter how they respond back to you. Does the world today not really need, or really need, a good dose of our Lord's agape love? Of course it does. In a world of violence and of cold-heartedness, it requires God's church, his people, to show and display the benchmark of how to be merciful. And how can we do that as Jesus' believers? Well, we can do it when we can overcome our personal differences, when we can cross the lines of denomination, of race and of culture, and reach out to others in love, and when we can show mercy to an offender. We become blessed for no other reason than fulfilling the law of Christ Jesus, 
in loving one another and being merciful to each other or to others. And perhaps when we begin to display the acts of mercy as God's church, to begin to fulfill the command of blessed are the merciful, the world will sit up and take notice of our Lord's words, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And in concluding, I want to finish by saying this. God's mercy to each of us here today is through his son's death and resurrection on Calvary's lonely cross. And ask yourself a question this morning. Where would you be today without having Jesus in your life and him showing his mercy to you? And I can honestly say, I believe, I know where I would be today without Jesus in my life. In the old hymn entitled, And How Can It Be? Two of the verses say this. He left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace, emptied himself of all but love, and bled for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy all, immense and free, for, O oh God, it found out me. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eyes diffused a quickening ray. I awoke the dungeon flamed with light. My, chi- my chains fell off and my heart was free. I rose, went forth and followed thee. So let's carry on following Jesus and embracing the uh, Beatitudes and applying them to our lives.